When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Welcome back to the Asian Madness Podcast. I appreciate you letting me take the time off and do some stuff on my own. It was a much-needed time off, for sure. I know I'm not putting stuff out every week, but researching, writing, recording, and editing all on my own can be quite stressful. It's crazy how it felt like it was just yesterday I was talking about how this year is halfway over. And now, this year is basically over. How did this even happen? A bit happy because I love winter, but a bit sad because there goes another year and here I am, one year older and not any wiser. But guess what? The Asian Madness podcast turned four. I started this podcast in late October of 2017, right around my birthday, and it's been a wild ride. Wouldn't have gotten this far without all your support, messages, and downloads. Gonna be honest and say it's not been all fun and rainbows. I have had times where it was hard to continue, but I'm happy to say that this podcast is still here and I actually get to take part in next year's CrimeCon. Again, if you're planning on going, remember to use my code MADNESS for your standard badge discount. Now that I got all that out of the way, it is time for today's topic. Many people have suggested this case, and the first one might have been Joelle from Instagram. While researching this, though, I found another case I wanted to talk about, and you will soon see how these two cases share some similarities and are very much worth discussing. We will be discussing both Maggie de la Riva and Pepsi Paloma, their rise to fame, and the kind of shit they had to deal with as beautiful women in a very sexist and violent industry. Let's begin. I would like to start off with Maggie de la Riva mostly because I like chronological order and it makes sense. So, Maggie de la Riva, full name Maria Magdalena Torrente de la Riva, was born in Manila on September 3, 1942 to her parents, Pilar Torrente and Juan de la Riva. Maggie had a lot going on as a teenager, it seemed. She took ballet classes, went to school, received her high school degree, took training courses for secretarial training, and afterwards began to compete in various beauty pageants. In one pageant in 1963, she was one of the top five finalists. All this exposure eventually led her to a lot of publicity, and seeing she was beautiful, it didn't take long for her to move on to even bigger things, like acting. 
Her big acting break came when she starred in a movie called Istanbul, or Bystander in English, which was released in 1963. She was only 21 at the time. After blowing up and becoming super popular, she went on to act in several more films and even had her own television show called Maggie. She was young, beautiful, successful, and loved by everyone. Seems like she had it all. As we know, something bad definitely happened to her since she's on this podcast. On June 26 of 1967, when she seemed to be at the height of her fame, some people decided to be selfish and cruel to her, hoping they could get away with it. She was heading home one night driving in Quezon City with her assistant when a fancy two-door convertible forced them to stop. Four men were in the car, and they swiftly got out, grabbed Maggie, forced her into their car, and sped off. At this point, it was for sure a case of kidnapping. Did they want money? Or did they want something else? The four men met up with a few other of their friends after kidnapping Maggie. The group of men then took her to a hotel in the city of Pasay, arriving at around 3 a.m. I don't know if the hotel staff noticed anything weird, or if they were intimidated by the men, but somehow, a group of four guys and one woman managed to check in with no issues. Not sure if she was unconscious or if she was cooperating because they were threatening her. Either way, they got to the room and these scum of the earth began taking turns forcing themselves on her. She was threatened all night, telling her they will kill her if she didn't do as they pleased, if she fought back, they would hurt her, etc. After three hours of torture and assault, they actually let her go. Of course, I'm glad they did, because she went through hell and back. She should live and tell others of what happened. But it's strange, because it's like these guys didn't think she would go to the police? Or maybe they didn't think the police would care? I mean, it was the 60s. People viewed sexual assault probably a bit differently back then. If you told people about getting raped, they might even ask you, well, what were you wearing? You know, that kind of bullshit. When Maggie finally made it home, she found that her mother had already called the police. Her brother-in-law, some news reporters, and several police officers were there as well. I mean, she was abducted from her car. It was probably late at night. It shouldn't be surprising that her mom panicked when her daughter never made it home. Maggie was also in the car with her assistant. So if the assistant wasn't abducted, it would make sense for her to call the police and report her as kidnapped. As a famous person, her kidnapping would definitely have attracted a lot of attention, which may explain the police and the media. Maggie proceeded to tell her mother about what happened to her, and although I do not know the details of the crime, I do believe it must have been awful. These men definitely needed to be caught soon before they ended up terrorizing another woman. Maggie was understandably in shock after what had happened to her, and although she had told her mother what had happened, she wasn't ready to tell her account to the police just yet. It's not uncommon for victims of sexual assault and rape to hesitate, mostly because they would either be seen in a negative way, despite the whole thing not being their fault, or they may feel unsafe worried the police won't believe them, or the perpetrators would come back for them. She took about three days to think things over, and once she felt comfortable and safe, she went and told the police everything. The four main perpetrators were caught pretty quickly. Why? Well, 
They were quite prominent and well-known figures themselves, or at least they were related to one, which makes recognizing them a whole lot easier, especially when you do trashy things like abduct and assault women. The four pieces of trash were Jaime Gomez Jose, son of a doctor and businesswoman. He had a history of assaulting women and also had his own band, which probably sucked. Edgardo Payumo Aquino, university student and son of a lawyer. Basilio Penida Jr., son of a retired police chief. And Rogelio Sevilla Canal, son of a retired principal. They were all in their early 20s, probably grew up super privileged and spoiled, which eventually led to them becoming assholes who didn't know how to be decent people. The first guy, Jaime Gomez Jose, was quickly caught, and not long after he was interrogated, he admitted to what he had done and he gave up the names of his accomplices. So much for being partners in crime, but hey, his cowardice worked out for everyone. Once the other three guys heard that their friend was arrested for the crime, they fled town because of course they did. Two of them were quickly tracked down by the police, and the last guy probably felt a lot of pressure and fear from running. Or maybe guilt, so he decided to turn himself in. Pretty good development so far. Quite anticlimactic, but that's usually a good thing when it comes to true crime. The last thing we need is another unsolved cold case or a high-speed car chase where tons of other people get caught in between. During the trial, the four men admitted that although, yes, they did kidnap Maggie, she willingly took money from them in the hotel room to perform certain acts, such as a striptease. I kind of call horseshit on that because there were four of them, one of her. They had weapons, she did not. She was literally at their mercy. If you were abducted and held at gunpoint, it wouldn't be strange at all if your initial instincts were to do what they told you to do, even if it meant stripping or swallowing a worm. In a sense, they were trying to minimize their own involvement by saying she complied, or was even willing, to participate. One of the perpetrators, Jose, told the police and the court what happened that day and what led them to target Maggie de la Riva. The boys decided to go out for a ride at night on Jose's red Pontiac, trying to look cool and flashy. The four of them then went to get several drinks at a cocktail lounge, and that's when the topic of Maggie de la Riva came up. One of the guys was reportedly obsessed with the actress-slash-model. I mean, no shame in that, right? Some people have celebrity crushes and whatever, but few would go out of their way to find out their actual schedule and track them down. Literally. But that's exactly what they did. They drove to where they knew she was working that night, at the ABS studio, and they proceeded to wait for her. Once she appeared, they tried to talk to her, most probably in a creepy manner, because Maggie was uncomfortable and quickly got in her car with her assistant and left. Being boys, they hated the rejection, so they got back in their own car and chased her. Once they caught up to her, they forced her to stop, and you know the rest. She was definitely fighting after her abduction, and they definitely did throw a few punches at her to keep her still. On October 2, 1967, only a few months after Maggie's assault, the four men were all found guilty by the court and sentenced to death by electric chair. Kind of crazy, right? 
I mean, yes, they did extremely horrible things to a vulnerable woman, but I would never have expected them to get the death sentence. I'm fully aware that the law works differently in every single country, or even state, when it comes to the U.S. Do you think you would have given them the death sentence? It's also surprising considering the fact that they are all from families of pretty much prominent figures of society, and they were rich too. In a sense, it's great because this case made it seem like being rich doesn't put you above the law, but at the same time, I'm still surprised about the death sentences. The defense team, of course, did try to appeal the sentence, but they lost. The final statement issued by the Supreme Court read, quote, Appellants Jaime G. Jose, Rogelio Sevilla, Basilio Pineda Jr., and Edgardo P. Aquino are pronounced guilty of the complex crime of forcible abduction with rape, and each and every one of them is likewise convicted of three other crimes of rape. As a consequence, each of them is hereby sentenced to four death penalties. All of them shall jointly and severally indemnify the complainant of the sum of 10,000 pesos in each of the four crimes, or a total of 40,000 pesos, and each shall pay one-fourth of the costs. Unquote. All four men were scheduled to die in the year 1972, but before that could take place, Rogelio Sevilla died from a drug overdose while in prison. As for the other three, nothing changed. Their last day on earth came, and they had some pretty decent meals, where breakfast consisted of fried chicken and coffee, and lunch was chicken, rice, lobster, ice cream, and some Filipino foods like kare-kare and lechon. That's a feast in my opinion, but I doubt they had the appetite as the three men were reportedly terrified. They were set to be crying the entire day. I mean, at this point, I think they were maybe in their late 20s or early 30s at most. Still pretty young. Would they have turned their lives around if they had only been sentenced to some years behind bars? Or would that just serve as a break from being awful people? It's really hard to tell. But since they were so young when the crime was committed, it feels like rehabilitation could have been a possibility. But then again, if it didn't work and they got out of prison and assaulted more women, or killed women, yeah, that would suck. Jaime Jose was the first one to go. He took his place on the chair, was sedated, then pretty much went into shock. Three guards then proceeded to pull three different switches, and only one of them had electric current in it. I remember hearing about this, so in a way it's kind of like, you don't know who pulled the lever of death. Maybe it's used to ease guilt for the prison executioners. The next one up was Basilio Pineda, who was allegedly so terrified he had to be dragged into the execution chamber. The last one to die was Edgardo Aquino, and he seemed to be somewhat repentant for his crimes. His last words were, quote, Avoid bad companions and obey your parents. End quote. I could see many parents using his last words to lecture their kids, like, Obey me or you will end up in an electric chair. So, like I said, this case was kind of a big deal. Four people were put to death for the kidnapping and rape of a young celebrity. They did something horrible, no doubt. And remember, this took place like decades ago, in the 60s. I would not have expected the police or the court to show so much sympathy to a woman claiming to have been kidnapped and raped, to be honest. 
Even nowadays, rape victims hesitate to come forward, despite living in a more modern and progressive era. Of course, Maggie de la Riva fought hard to make her voice heard, and her being a celebrity probably did help her a lot, and hopefully even set a precedence and warning for other future potential rapists. She was even asked, How does it feel like to be responsible for the death of four men? The freaking audacity. She responded with class and reason. Quote, I'm not responsible for the death of four men. They did it to themselves. They had the power of choice. They chose to be evil. They had to meet the consequences of their action. Unquote. Is it actually surprising there are consequences to one's actions? Crazy. The death penalty was in effect for a long time in the Philippines, but it was taken off the table in 1986. It was later reinstated, but rape was no longer a death penalty crime. The Asian Madness podcast is brought to you by Ritual, something important we should talk about as women. Let's face it, we live in a world where we get tons of fast food and making time to get all your nutrients in can be a bit of a hassle. This is where Ritual comes in. Did you know that a large percentage of adult women are not getting enough vitamin D and omega-3? Yeah, I didn't know that either. My mother has been on my back for years, reminding me to take vitamin D, and I never really understood the benefits of it. So here I am pretending to be your mother, because I hate to say it, she was right. Ritual's Essential Multivitamin has been heavily researched and is used to help with improvement of brain health, bone health, blood health, and all those other things that can help with overall health. Those that have tried Ritual have reported an increase in both vitamin D and omega-3 levels. I find that pretty weird and impressive. These vitamins are, of course, non-GMO, vegan-friendly, and with very transparent ingredients, meaning no weird chemicals that can end up ruining our bodies. Right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash Asian and turn healthy habits into a ritual. That's 10% off at ritual.com slash Asian. And from here, we will proceed to the second case of this episode. It is wildly similar, but the outcomes could not be any more different. Allow me to introduce to you Delia Duena Smith, more commonly known by her stage name, Pepsi Paloma. She was born on March 11, 1966, so right before the rape and kidnapping of Maggie de la Riva. She had three younger siblings, and their father, an American man, left them when they were all very young. She was always very beautiful, even at a young age, so it wasn't really a surprise when a talent scout discovered her when she was only 14. She was a major hit, and her talent scout and manager must have been extremely proud of their work with her. She made her first movie debut in the year 1982, starring in a movie called Brown Emmanuel. She had allegedly agreed to go nude on screen for the movie, which is incredibly weird and creepy, but it really helped her career. After that, she became famous and her good looks earned her a spot in the so-called soft drinks beauty, along with Sarsi Emmanuel and Coca Nicolas. As you can tell, Pepsi and Coca are both soft drinks, and Sarsi is basically sarsaparilla, similar to root beer. Anyway, this soft drinks beauty thing was something that 
they came up with in the Philippines during the golden era for movies, where young women under the age of 21 were displayed as sex objects. Sounds a little sketchy, I know, especially nowadays, objectifying women under 21 and stuff. I mean, obviously, this still is happening everywhere, and the truth is that some people are very much into these young sex symbols who are not afraid to show some skin and look pretty. Before I continue, I would like to point out something about many Asian cultures. One reason I believe why both Maggie de la Riva and Pepsi Paloma were considered beautiful and successful is because of their ethnicity. This might be debatable, but I'm Asian, and I feel like I've been seeing this my whole life. I know I'm not the only one who might hold this opinion, so it's not really controversial. Anyway, in many Asian countries, they regard those of mixed races, especially those of Asian and Caucasian mixes, exceptionally attractive, aka Eurasian. Maggie de Riva was born to a Filipino mixed mother and a German-Swiss father, while Pepsi was born to a Filipino mother and an American father. I don't think this is a thing of the past either. Even nowadays, people continue to praise Eurasian-looking people for being better-looking, and many famous actors and actresses and models in Asia have that Eurasian look. Many people even automatically believe that a baby born from an Asian and Caucasian parent will be cuter than average Asian babies. Kind of sad, really. I remember growing up and every time I flipped open a Japanese fashion magazine, at least half of the women on it were of a Eurasian mix. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out. It could be because of colonialism or maybe the Western beauty standard gruels for so long. I don't know. But hopefully, things are changing. Pepsi Paloma went on to act in a few other movies and also appeared in various shows. Things were going well for her till one day, Pepsi Paloma shocked the public with scandalous brand new information. She and another actress friend of hers had both been sexually abused and assaulted by three famous on-screen comedians. Everyone was shocked and needed answers as to who, what, where, when, why, and how. Here's Pepsi Paloma's account of what happened. Sometime in June of 1982, Pepsi and an actress friend of hers, Guada Guarin, were doing a taping on a very popular variety show called Eat Bulaga. The show name basically references to popular children's game, it as in tag, your it kind of thing, and peekaboo. Instead of using it, though, they changed it to the word eat, like eating food, because it's a noontime show, so many of its viewers are usually eating lunch while they watch the show. Kind of a play on words. Anyway, it's basically a fun-for-all audience kind of show where guests and hosts participate in game segments and, of course, comedy segments. The three hosts at the time were Vic Soto, Joey De Leon, and Richie Reyes, a.k.a. Richie the Horsey. According to Pepsi, her and Guada Guarin were both on the show sometime around June of 1982 at a TV-slash-radio broadcasting studio called Broadcast City. While the show taping itself went as planned, Pepsi said that the three men soon showed their true colors after the taping was over. This included ripping at their blouses, forcefully pinning her up against a wall, taking indecent photos, and physical molestation. The two were also drugged and taken to a nearby hotel 
where the men continued to assault them, which included rape. This obviously was huge news for the media and definitely major for everyone who was into or involved with movies. But it's not just that. One of the guys, Vic Soto, had an older brother, Tito Soto, who was a famous actor and also running for senator, so it became also somewhat big news in the political world. This case was somewhat strange though, not at all straightforward like that of Maggie de la Riva. After Pepsi went to the police and reported the rape and assault, the three men denied everything that she had said about them. The older brother, Tito, tried to step in and also denied her claim, saying that she was lying and that she was only looking for attention. Tito claimed that Pepsi Paloma was dishonest and that it was actually the two women who were trying to get the three men's attention. Instead of the guys tearing at their clothes and taking indecent photos, Pepsi was the one who asked to take photos with them, asking Vic Soto to pose with her as if kissing her. He also pointed out that there were literally no witnesses, which is unlikely in a place like a recording studio. And if two women were in distress with their clothes ripped off, someone surely would have noticed, right? I guess that's true in a way. Someone could have seen or heard something, but they also could have chosen not to say anything. Obviously, Tito Soto wasn't there, and he was only retelling what he had heard from his brother, which can make people question it. It was even alleged that Tito Soto took it a few steps further by showing up unannounced and intimidating Pepsi with a gun, and later on even hired a relative of theirs, convicted felon Ben Ulo, to kidnap her and, of course, scare her into taking back what she had said. This alleged kidnapping was resolved, but the guy was never convicted for any crimes committed against Pepsi. Maybe due to lack of evidence, or maybe due to having famous relatives like Tito and Vic Soto. This case, of course, reminded the public of what had happened to Maggie de la Riva years ago, but this is where things take a complete different turn. Tito Soto showed the public an affidavit of desistance with Pepsi's signature on it, According to LegalTree.ph, an affidavit of desistance is basically, quote, a written statement under oath by the complainant stating that he or she is no longer interested in pursuing the complaint or criminal case against another person, unquote. Some say that Pepsi Paloma was forced to sign the affidavit, and others believe that the signature on the form was not from Pepsi, but was instead signed by her mother which then leads me to believe that the Soto family may have offered them money so they could withdraw their initial complaint. It was rumored that Pepsi's mother was very much in love with the money that Pepsi was bringing in. And yeah, I won't lie and say that making money isn't great and stuff, but you would think that her daughter's well-being and safety would come first. Pepsi's family wasn't well off to begin with, and her mother was a single mother raising multiple children. Life must have been tough. Regardless, I don't think this decision was up to her mother, even if Pepsi was still a minor at this time. Anyway, much of this is speculation, so just take it as extra information. You would think that after obtaining this signed affidavit, things would just die down. But in another strange move, the three comedians who were accused of rape and assault suddenly went on national TV in October of 1982. They were on their knees and begging for forgiveness. Quote, 
We hope that you will not allow the error we have committed against you stand as a stumbling block to that future which we all look forward to. We, therefore, ask you to find it in your heart to pardon us for the wrong which we have done against you. Unquote. This sounds like a confession, right? Why would they want to apologize if they didn't actually commit any crimes against her? And why would they choose to do it months after being accused, after vehemently denying it for months, and after the affidavit was supposedly signed? It's a very strange move to me. Doing this just makes me think they are indeed guilty of something, or else they would have just been happy with the affidavit, continued to deny any wrongdoing, and life would just go on. Their show didn't lose popularity, and many people still adored them. So it didn't seem like they had to own up to something like this to get viewers and fans back. Because of the affidavit, Pepsi wasn't really able to pursue this case any further, despite the rumors stating that she didn't sign it herself. I mean, could she have signed it and then regretted it? I guess that's not how legal documents work. Once you sign it, it's a done deal, even if you change your mind later. What are your thoughts on these strange turn of events? Similarly to Maggie de la Riva, this scandal did not really affect her acting career in general. She continued filming, and even starred in a movie called The Victim the following year in 1983. This movie felt a bit like an autobiography of her life, which also included the rape allegations she had made the previous year. It's a bit weird in a sense, quite exploitative. If the assault and rape did happen, it would feel a bit wrong to put her back into a situation like that, even if it was just a movie. It sounds pretty triggering to me. I have no idea if she was okay with it because she was young and naive and needed to work, or maybe she had mentally blocked it all off in a sense and tried to continue living a normal life. That is, assuming her claims and accusations were true. But it's also not surprising that her choice to act in this film about her rape would leave the public doubting her side of the story. It just feels pretty exploitative, as I said. Many people began to wonder if Pepsi's rape accusations were even true, or if this was all a propaganda move to bring more attention to her. Like they say, no publicity is bad publicity, especially in the world of entertainment. We continue to see this kind of thing even today, where celebrities are suspected of breaking up or getting back together with others for the clicks and views, or where two celebrities have fake feuds, which ends up drawing a lot of attention to both of them. It's especially hard for us as consumers to even know what to believe in anymore. And sometimes it's not even that we care whether the Kardashians hate somebody in particular or if these celebrities are cheating on their spouses. We can just be naturally curious and want a sip of that damn tea. If I didn't know much about Pepsi Paloma, I would have probably thought, hey, despite her traumatic experience, she seemed to have pushed forward and continued living her life as a young actress. But no. She was said to have had a difficult life after the incident, which included an even more strained relationship with her mother and getting into the world of drugs. She was said to be very thin and weak during those years, and she even had to be admitted into a private clinic. On May 31, 1985, her boyfriend arrived at her apartment at around 6 p.m. and found that Pepsi Paloma had hung herself in her apartment closet. The police were called, 
and her time of death was estimated to be around 1 or 2 p.m. of that same day. According to her boyfriend and those who had been with her earlier that day, she had had lunch with them and returned to her room. She also told them she was going to take a nap and told them not to disturb her. They tried to contact her at around 3 p.m., but received no response. Her boyfriend then returned at around 6 p.m. to check on her, and when there was still no response from her, he broke down the door and found her dead in the apartment. A suicide note was supposedly found in the apartment, and it read, This is a crazy planet. I'm not sure how people knew that was her suicide note, though, and that seemed to be the only thing out of the ordinary. A diary was also found in her apartment, which gave the police some clues as to why she could have chosen to kill herself, and those reasons include financial stress, work stress, family stress, and her strained relationship with her mother. Some people doubt that the diary even belonged to Pepsi, believing that it could have been planted, which hints at foul play. I don't know if the police did any sort of handwriting analysis, but that would have been telling in the very least. The reason some people doubt the diary was because according to Pepsi's manager, she had lots of work lined up for the foreseeable future, and money-wise, she was doing extremely well. Again, people go into dark places, and sometimes they want to end their lives even if everything seems to be going well. We never really know how someone is really feeling. Pepsi Paloma's death seemed to come as a shock for most people, and the rumors and speculation just never seemed to end, even today. Her funeral took place about a week after she was found dead, on June 8, 1985. Aside from her family, she had thousands of fans attending the funeral, determined to see her one last time. Pepsi had a lot of potential in the eyes of the nation. She starred in multiple movies at such a young age, and she was only 19 when she took her own life. I imagine that the life of a celebrity isn't always as glamorous as we see it on TV. To constantly be in the spotlight, people scrutinizing your every move, judging your choices, that shit sounds exhausting. I judge myself enough. I really don't need the entire world to do it for me. Could she have been helped? Maybe. It's really hard to say. She may have appeared to have been getting her life back on track. She may have been seen laughing and having fun at events. She may have been seen enjoying filming. But do we really know what goes on inside? Those who knew Pepsi personally remember her fondly as a sweet young girl and polite, but troubled and lonely. Overall, she was an ordinary teen who had crushes, liked things other girls her age liked. I guess suicide really came as a shock to many people. To this day, Tito Soto continues to deny the rape allegations. He calls it a gimmick, fake news cooked up by Pepsi's team in order to gain more publicity. He also swore that he and the other three men who were accused of rape had nothing to do with her death. I understand. He wants to stick up for his brother and he definitely doesn't want his family name linked to such a crime. If the three men had been arrested, if the case had gone to trial, and if they had been found guilty of rape, they would very likely have had to face the same fate as Maggie de la Riva's attackers, the death sentence. The death penalty for rape was still ongoing during the years Pepsi was alive, so in a way, they really managed to dodge that fate. Here's something some of you may be wondering, though. Did the other woman, Guadaguarin, ever speak up about the incident? 
Well, sort of. She seemed to have been mostly quiet about the incident around the time it happened, but in a later interview in 2015, she made it clear that she no longer wanted to participate in this conversation and that the past was in the past. She wanted to leave it behind as she had already moved on. She explained that it doesn't matter what she says, no one will understand what she and Pepsi had to go through. There are just so many parts in this case that seem so shady and uncertain to me. Like the signature on the affidavit, the sudden apologies issued by the three men, the movie on her life and rape, and the conflicting information about her diary and her death. I will always want to believe the victim, and I cannot deny that there are signs pointing to her account as being truthful. Or maybe there was something else that happened, something that no one ever mentioned. Enough about me, though. What do you guys think? So there you have it. Two seemingly similar cases of rape, but with vastly different outcomes. Maggie de la Riva's case was pretty straightforward in the sense that she reported it, the men were immediately arrested, they all confessed, and they all paid the ultimate price. But with Pepsi Paloma, things were not so black and white and she ended up dead. It's quite sad thinking that she was so young and probably very confused with her life. We see this even today, where kid celebrities grow up and become someone completely different in the process because of the pressure and different lifestyles they had to face. They sometimes go off the rail, suffer from mental health issues, or become addicted to drugs. Think Lindsay Lohan, Amanda Bynes, or maybe even Macaulay Culkin. Though, he seems to be doing a lot better now. I would love to hear your thoughts on this case, especially what you believe happened to Pepsi Paloma. As always, thank you for being so patient and for tuning into this episode. Please be kind to those around you, because we really never know what they are going through. Till next time. Before I go, I would like to thank Tina Chan for their wonderful review of the podcast, and also would like to thank Terence Wong, Serena, and Gigi for their Patreon pledges. Thank you all so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.